I don't think we should get too friendly, Willie. She's right. Let's have a snack now. We'll get friendly later. You got a cat? You eat cats? You can't eat Lucky. No, no cat eating. Not in this house. All right, all right. How about a cat food can? I could use the roughage. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Ow! Be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And today, we have a lineup that is going to take us back to the dawn of humankind. What are we talking about today, Amy? (laughs) Even before the dawn of humankind. All right, today, well, today we're talking about puppets. Yeah, yeah. Puppet-based sitcoms. This is a topic I have been campaigning for since the beginning of our podcast. You got your ALF. You got your dinosaurs, right? There's just... I don't know. There's there's more than I even can name, but I feel like there's always been this little... A little weird corner of the sitcom world or the television in general world that is puppets. What, what's your experience? What are your feelings on puppets? Some people are freaked out by them. Some people love them. What, what are we dealing with here? Well, you know, I liked Alf when I was a kid. I loved the dinosaur. I loved dinosaurs when I was a kid. I thought that was hilarious with the, not the mama. I've done Avenue Q as an adult. So, yeah, you know, puppeteering say- is not, is, is fun but there's there's this sort of like weirdness right like i loved sesame street and the muppets growing up a hundred percent but isn't there this weird sort of like underworld literally because they're like these creatures of the dark that are the puppeteers and aren't they all like a little weird isn't that the thing like if you want to make your life about a dummy i don't know you mentioned a few weeks ago on our Pee Wee Herman episode that you loved the Muppets, right? You were really into the Muppet show. And interestingly, we're going to talk about some Jim Henson work, but not Muppets. And I think that's something that's going to come up is that what you're talking about, that uncanniness, that kind of creepiness, I think Jim Henson and the Muppets solved that in a way that most other puppet stuff, especially going back, you know, a few decades, didn't. And so I kind of agree. I think that there is some creepiness in some of this. I've been thinking about it, and puppets and sitcoms are such a weird mix, because in some ways, we always talk about how sitcoms kind of have one foot in the world of vaudeville and theater, And you got that live audience. And, you know, we'll talk about how some of these shows are do have the live audience and some don't. But puppetry and that kind of, you know, wackiness and sort of weird pageantry is a good match for that. On the other hand, you see how 
the lack of a human connection that you have with some of these puppets is kind of a deal breaker or how the weird accommodations that have to be made on the set because the living room needs to have a trench in it for the puppeteers or everybody always needs to be weirdly looking at the back of the couch because that's where the puppet can stand. Like all of these weird contrivances that have to be made to make this gimmick work kind of take away from that that chemistry and that spontaneity so i feel like it's this weird sort of like love-hate relationship between puppetry and sitcoms <laughs> well and then the other thing i think we'll notice as, as a through line through most of this puppeteers and and the characters that they create i think there's this sense of i know i'm doing something sort of childish so i want to try and make it body or a little over the top in in these other ways and and so you'll see this tension where it's you know the character is very adult or trying to like appeal to an adult sort of sensibility and yet it's a puppet, so kids are really interested in watching the show. Yeah, I think that's a very acute observation because all of these shows are, in one way or another, playing on the tension of seeing something made for kids that's doing something not necessarily wildly inappropriate, but that's doing something that in some way butts up against that. And we should say, in our choosing of these shows... We we tried to shy away from, uh, you know, we did have to narrow down. There, there are uh, more than four puppet-based sitcoms. And so Cousin Skeeter, for example, was one that we were considering, but we kind of shied away from because it is a Nickelodeon, Disney Channel-type show, and we just thought it would be more interesting to talk about these weird ones that kind of went for it in terms of having the adult themes ish in some cases with the you know childlike medium of puppets right for sure so we're going to watch the pilot episodes of madam's place alf dinosaurs and unhappily ever after yeah, we've got some bizarre coincidences going on here because we completely randomly have been making our way through this like 1982 year in pop music countdown bandstand thing. Solid gold. Don't right. confuse it with bandstand. Yeah, we've been watching this thing on YouTube randomly and it has... So far, the only non-musical act has been this madam puppet that I didn't know what the hell it was, but you were sort of familiar with it. So walk us through, apart from the sitcom per se, who's, who's madam? So madam is um, the creation of a puppeteer named Waylon Flowers, and she got her start, <laughs> madam got her start, kind of like Bette Midler, right? I think it was the 70s, right? She is performing like these sort of vaudeville kind of acts all around the gay clubs in New York City. She gets hired up in P-Town and Provincetown and create, you know, gets a wider audience once she's performing up in P-Town. And then 
somebody like she, like they meet Waylon meets somebody and they're like man you need to get out to Hollywood like this this will go places this will do something and so he does he moves across the country with his puppet act to Hollywood and you know by the late 70s early 80s is on Laugh-In in 1979 as like a and has starred in other little things you know has done some other stuff but you know kind of big break laugh in 1979 and then on to solid gold as like one of these recurring characters that does some funny things and that is when the idea of hey this is a marketable character let me see if i can start developing a show so this is almost like the peewee herman trajectory this is like a character that's sort of, you know, floating around orphaned from any particular show or movie or anything that's just kind of coming up in the world of theater. And people are like, this is funny. Put him on a talk show. Put him on American gold record. Solid gold. What is wrong with you? The solid gold dancers are amazing. It's like you didn't even live in the 80s. Who are you? So let's talk just for a second about this personality, right? This archetype that this madam character is imbuing, because this is something, the example that my mind goes to is Joan Rivers, but it definitely predates her. This idea of an older comedian, a lady comedian, that's going to sort of roast everybody, also be very horny and going to sort of (laughs) complain about the fact that she doesn't have sex anymore uh, or doesn't have as much sex as she wants to anymore. So the the inspiration for the character of Madam came, again, New York City, this guy um, who is, you know, her puppeteer, Waylon Flowers, was having a drink at a bar in New York one night and this woman comes in, this old lady comes in with a little dog and the bartender picks up the dog and the old lady kind of, you know, crows out, you know, get your hands off me, you asshole, give me a drink or something like this. And he strikes up a conversation with this woman because he found like that voice coming out of this, like what looks like kind of a dainty old lady very funny. And it turns out she's a former Ziegfeld Follies girl. And she had all of these crazy stories. And she was very um, ribald, (laughs) had, you know, had a mouth like a sailor, told these, you know, body stories from old vaudeville days and the the Ziegfeld Follies days. And he just was like, Oh, my gosh, I, I have someone had gifted him a puppet from like a Wizard of Oz show that he had done. That was the Wicked Witch of the West. And that's what Madam was. And he was like, he started to sort of think about, you know, oh, I'm going to retool her. I'll put on new, you know, outfits or whatever. And then she's going to become this character. Yeah. All right. So when we get to this sitcom, right, this looks like a early 80s artifact. Uh, so I guess this has got to be the sort of height of Madam's success is having what looks like a uh, network syndicated. I don't know. Some so kind it was of- syndicated. Yeah, it was it was interesting. And you probably know more about this than I do. But when I was looking into it, because I don't ever remember watching it when I was little, but it was around it, it was the 82, 83 season. So same time as like Webster and Family Ties and some of that stuff I definitely watched. So I'm like, why wouldn't I have seen this? Number one, because of all the, you know, racy jokes. But it was it was recorded for five nights a week into syndication. It was supposed to be like a late night thing. I don't remember this either. I don't know if it's just a little before when we would be paying attention to this kind of thing. 
I have to say, I found this kind of incomprehensible. Like there was something <laughs> about the show that it kind of washed over me. And it's just like, it was a little hard to follow and piece together. What I will say right off the bat, though, is that if I'm not mistaken, we are looking at a live, true multicam. Everything is being performed before an audience. So what you're seeing is a feat. You are seeing yeah. a little troupe of actors perform a sitcom around this weird puppet thing and, you know, just, just having to play it all for the audience and get the laughs and everything as though it were any other sitcom. And that is impressive. I was very impressed by several pieces that happened during it. Again, just like from my time doing Avenue Q, knowing how difficult it is to use the puppet arms to actually like make the puppet do something. You have to be really talented and practice a lot to make that happen. <laughs> and once in a while, she'll just like pick up a phone with her mouth or something. Right, because she's like, it's not happening. So she had, she was doing like a, a, like a tanning bed. She was like sitting in her bed and had like a sun lamp on her and that, you know, the like foil foldable windshield screen so that it would reflect up on her. But she had the little, the little eyeglass blocker goggle things that you wear if you're going to go into a tanning bed. She had those on her head. And of course, because she's a puppet, you know, they were, they were on a string around her head and with the puppet arm in the scene live, the you know Waylon Flowers the puppeteer is able to take those little glasses goggle things off of her and continue the scene there was another time later in the episode where she like walked to get the door or went over to like from move from one side of the set to the other and this isn't like the the beginning and end of Fraggle Rock, where, you know, Doc is shot from way, way down below because the whole set is built up right. to, you know, six foot height. So the puppeteers can actually stand and not have to crouch. No, this is like a normal set that the puppeteers having to kind of move around in. So they constructed a dolly for him so he could like scoot and stay out of the camera line you know the uh, the Just island of the camera back, basically. or like yeah or be on his belly or whatever still have his arm up and kind of scoot all from one side of the set to the other so that's how they did the thing where she goes over to answer the door yeah they definitely have those impressive moments but that said it helps that your main puppet character is somebody where it's part of her personality that she's waited on hand and foot and insists on never doing anything and always i don't want to get out of bed i don't want to move from my spot yeah uh, so well but in terms of puppetry as well so madam if you you know if you haven't seen her you don't know she has sort of a similar body to kermit the frog she's very much a hand puppet and she's very yeah. slender because that is like her body is the arm of the puppeteer you know with the the fancy clothes over it and she's got the really long skinny arms just like kermit the frog has yeah too. but if we're talking about her design let's talk about the key difference she's hard right her head is hard at least partially and right. so the so it, she's got like a mask for the top of her 
you know, like the hinge is, of course, the jaw, like always, right? But so there's like this mask that's the top of her that has a really big nose. Like she, her head looks like a dick and balls. Like <laughs> the mask part and the really long yeah. nose kind of looks like a dick. And then she's got this huge chin that's like, you know, the, the split chin like um, John Travolta has or whatever, yeah. the cleft chin. But it's really pronounced and it sticks out because that's the there's a thumb in there to like work the mouth. And so it's like, it looks like balls, but like balls coming out at you. Yeah, it's big and exaggerated. It makes sense that it started out as a modified uh, Wicked Witch. But it's the same general kind of puppet. If you think of those old timey ones, like your Punch and Judy or whatever. It's like before you had that change with Jim Henson and the Muppets and stuff where everything was more felt and foamy. It's more old school, like something you could knock on this puppet's face if you wanted to, you know? And so I think that plays into what we were talking about before of how you know, granted, she's supposed to be harsh and Right. There is a stiffness in the movement. Yeah, you just don't connect to her, to this puppet. Like, she just always looks like this thing that's you know kind of bopping around and you know uh it it just it doesn't have that softness that makes it like cute that oh yeah well and i don't think she's meant to be cute you know like i said this was filmed for the late night audience one of the big things that this show did was that they always tried to have like up and coming stand-up comedians on it paul rubens was a guest on it at one point a bunch of other people were were guests that were already famous but some of the up-and-comers that were unknown at the time arsenio hall and jay leno huh all right, there's. They got that Madam's Place seal of approval, and the rest was history. <laughs> so the show begins with an amazing opening theme sequence. I have to say, if you're if you have no interest in anything else, I would look up on YouTube the intro to Madam's Place. It's just so surreal seeing all these shots of the puppet bopping around in these different circumstances, but. The story of this episode, which I guess is sort of setting up the circumstances of the overall show, is that she's the host of a talk show or a variety show, and they want her to shoot in a studio, but she wants to make the show in her home. And she's been making the show in her home for years and years, and her argument for that is that it's called Madam's Place. My fans won't like it if it's not out of my place. This seems like something that would be very common now, like a YouTube video blogger type person. But I'm just trying to think of what precedent this would be latching onto. Like, what would be the real life show that they're trying to say, oh, it's like that? Because nothing is coming to mind of a talk show that somebody films in their house. I think more than anything... The fun of the of the show is being able to have the like wacky characters that are in her life uh, kind of interact with the wacky characters that then guest on her talk show. Yeah. And if it wasn't all happening in the same place, then you wouldn't have baby Corey Feldman, who lives next door, running in and interrupting things. Yeah, we get Corey Feldman. He looks like he's just about to do his role in Friday the 13th, part four of the final chapter. Let's walk through who these other characters are. They're basically 
all servants or employees of hers. Right. She's got her assistant or her, like her secretary, who's like her personal assistant. And then there's a guy who's her butler. And this is all, you know, described in the opening theme sequence. Like this, like you said, it was a really wild, fun theme sequence. And then there's her niece, who we meet halfway through this episode, who was, you know, wants to come to live with her. And she's, you know, very over the top, sexed up. Like the first thing Madam says to her when she walks in is that the auditions for Lil Abner were last week. Yeah, she's a young sex kitten type that's, I guess, meant to give us lots of hilarious sort of contrasts because, you know, Madam's going to be saying things like, oh, how do you get those breasts so perky? Mine are like saddlebags. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, except for she would say tits. Um, and yeah, and then the, she's like playing the dumb blonde for sure. So and then you have her agent who's played by the Micro Machines guy. Yeah, I didn't even follow what the relationship to him was. I was just astounded to see him for the second time. Again, weird coincidences. He popped up in that same solid gold thing. I guess him and Madam were just really like cresting in 1982 <laughs> or whenever this is. But yeah, we're talking about the Micro Machines guy who talked really fast in the commercials. He was also a teacher in Saved by the Bell. Same gimmick. I mean, he he literally held the world's record for fast talking, and he would come on Nickelodeon shows and stuff all the time. So yeah, he's in there as, I guess, her agent. But yeah, all of this is just, you know, she's she's kind of bossing everybody around, making demands. The whole point is that she's... And telling give- old stories. Yeah, but she's given the studio this ultimatum, and I guess they, they've basically fired her. Like, she's playing hardball, and she's like, I won't do the show unless I can do it from my house. And they're like, well, you can't. And so I think most of the episode is this sort of standoff where she's just kind of milling around her house waiting for that call where they back down. Right, and so she isn't expecting them to call her bluff and just fire her. So she tells all of her staff that she's fine and that's just the way Hollywood is and don't worry, they'll blink, you know, whatever, and sends them all, you know, off to bed for the night. And then she has a moment where she's like, oh, crap, well, I need to call in some favors. So she rings the butler and she's like, hey, bring me that list of all the people who have ever, you know, I've ever done a favor for. And so she she was like, Alan Alda, if he if he doesn't do something nice for an old lady, nobody will, you know, and that was at the top of the list. And then, you know, we get the little fate like wipe you know, fancy wipe or whatever. And then she's talking to like, you know, Mr. Zed or whatever, because it's now she's gone all the way through to the Z's. So she's been up all night calling, trying to call in her favors and nobody's taking her call. Everybody's out of town. She has one more favor to call in and it's the head of the network's ex-wife. So he ultimately capitulates She calls his ex-wife and calls in a favor from his ex-wife, who is apparently the only one who can make him do anything. And then she's waiting around for the call to see if the ex-wife actually would follow through on the favor because nobody else would. And then she gets the call and he's like, fine, whatever, you know, my ex-wife said I had to. and And so they're back on. So then they get to have a show. Yeah. And so she has as her guest on the show, a consumer affairs advocate 
Right. Well, so the joke with him is that he's supposed to be telling you, this is like the Dick Van Dyke show joke, right? He's supposed to be telling us how to say, stay safe and everything he does, he like gets hurt or yeah. hurts someone else. But it just has that thing of like, this guy is not Buster Keaton, right? No. Like, this guy is not a master <laughs> no. of like body slapstick. And so it's a little bit like, when the robber in the Paul Rubens episode, you know, stumbles like, quote unquote, against his will right. directly into the clutches, like between the puppet being hard to control and this guy trying to make these slapstick gags work, just everything feels like he's trying to get his finger <laughs> stuck in the oven or, or yes. whatever. So, yeah, they have all these gags. Dumping the cake on Madam gets applause, like a standing ovation from the audience. Uh, and that was my general impression of this was, look, this would be a fun sitcom to watch performed live. This would be yes. something to see. As it is going back and watching it now, just between the like so much of the beige living room, like so much of that 80s shot on video aesthetic and the humor is so weird like everything about it is just a little hard to get into for me i mean i was enjoying the little pieces for what they were right like i could definitely see they had a fun little moment where the um assistant was trying to like you know take dictation while the micro machines guy was talking as fast as he possibly could and so like her glasses fall off and everything's askew the stuff with um cory feldman was adorable there's just you know it was a little bit broad very silly who knows where it was gonna go though right they did 75 episodes they ran for one season whoa, it was whoa wait a minute 75 episodes because it was an every night show this was meant to run every single night that is wild yeah so they did one year 75 episodes and it, they like by the way the season i think they it was like from september 82 to february 83 and that's what when they did the 75 episodes like so much in such a short time but yeah it's a very intriguing sort of curiosity to me even if it's like a little bit of a turnoff of an experience yeah and i just i would be interested to watch a few more episodes you know just to see where they go with the different people and in the very first episode the writing is funny for madam and that's generally what happens right like that's why the show was being created in the first place and that's where all the um it's like doing a, a sitcom with a stand-up comedian right like yeah. the first season is generally how many of their stand-up bits can we get into these episodes and that's what we saw in the pilot here too for sure okay moving on to alf this time I don't have an episode to share with you yeah season one episode one were you an alf kid yes yeah, we all were, right? We all bought into the ALF craze. You oh, know? this yeah. was like right in that sweet spot. 1986, this, yeah. I, I thought this show was so funny. And this show got in trouble, right? Because so many kids got into it, but yet they still sort of, especially the first two seasons, were trying to make all these kind of racy jokes and have, you know, ALF was a little bit wild yeah. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, and there was all sorts of like... 
drama with the show that I, I forgot about. But then when I was reading about it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember, you know, this was during that time where it was like, you know, I guess it was a little before, like the rappers are all bad and the TV shows are all bad. But this is kind of the same thing. It was like, you know, some kid wanted to what put a, a hair dryer or a toaster well, yeah you the, had a kid like, try to eat his cat because yeah. alf eats cats you had yeah they did something about a not a hair dryer but some kind of electrical appliance in a bathtub which was from an amnesia episode funnily enough alf yeah. gets amnesia because he gets electrocuted and yeah a kid tried to replicate the thing that injures the character in the show but yeah, there were there were multiple things like that, including one fatality, at least. Uh, and none of these were your usual things. It wasn't like Alf, you know, says a curse word or something. They right. were bizarre, you know, jokes or like bizarre picadillos that he had that led to these yeah. mishaps. And so, yeah, so I guess some like some kids did it. And then that's when the show already was kind of harrowing. So unlike... What we saw in Madam's Place, where they're filming in front of a live studio audience, and it's, you know, kind of a, a fun production that they're putting on for that live audience. This was not. And this was unlike other episodes and unlike the whole Jim Henson world, where a single 20-minute episode would take 25 hours to film and it was happening in super hot studio in this very in these very dangerous conditions because of all the trap doors and stuff that you're seeing there was and it had to do a lot with the puppeteer who played Alf Paul Fusco I think is his name and he just he didn't want to rehearse and he refused to have Alf be seen as a puppet so he had to be completely hidden at all times even from the crew you know, even though he's the creator of the show. He's a method puppeteer. Right. And so it caused some issues for the entire production. Okay. So you're saying that this show wasn't filmed before an audience, but it does very much have the look and the language of a multi-camera sort of old-timey sitcom. So yeah. you're saying they filmed it with that same sort of set up, but it was done with all this added crap that they had to do because of ALF. Right. And then they would add a laugh track. Right. So if you're not familiar, the basic premise is ALF is an alien life form, right? <laughs> uh, and it's a family sitcom plus ALF, right? This is your down the middle, what if a normal family had an alien? Uh, just kind of like a funny version of E.T., but he didn't go home. He just stayed on Earth, and he talks fluent English, and his name is actually Gordon Chumway, and he's just referred to as ALF. So, yeah, you know, this show obviously has a very particular sensibility. You know, I, I don't know what to make of that tone that it's trying to strike where it's like, they're, they're incredulous that he's an alien, but nobody really remarks about how he speaks English and, you know, knows what, you know, he's able to make these jokes about things and stuff. Like, part of me thinks that that is stupid. Part of me kind of likes the absurdist mentality that goes into that. 
you know, it, it, you understand how this ended up as, as kind of a punchline, kind of like a, hey, remember ALF? Wasn't that weird? Like, that's the sort of cultural take on ALF now, right? Is it? I feel like, well, and it might just be our age, but I feel like everybody is kind of, you know, ALF is funny. Like, oh, ALF, yeah, it's a people good show. like it. Isn't it being, um, I think Ryan Reynolds is bringing it back on his, like, weird channel that he has I now. I feel like they've talked about ALF reboots for, for many years. I had a friend that was in, like, a small underground comedy sketch group that did like a ALF reboot quote unquote show, but it was obviously just their own little funny thing. But they got a cease and desist oh, yeah. from the rights owners of ALF. Well, and so that the reason that ALF didn't continue beyond its whatever NBC or whatever um, channel it was on beyond that run is because the guy who puppets ALF is completely territorial over the rights to it. So there was some, uh, the reason ALF was, it was canceled was that there was some sort of provision put into all new, you know, production contracts that was whatever sort of characters or something that were created were then property of NBC and not property of the creators of the show. And that was when Paul Fusco was like, that's it. ALF is canceled because I'm not, I'm not signing over my character to NBC and same thing prior to Alf being on this network it was there was you know a little bit of like Lorimer was bidding and Disney was bidding and Disney wanted it to be Walt Disney's Alf and he said nope it's Paul Fusco's Alf but he's mine you can't have him and so there's a lot like a lot of the things I think a lot of the reasons we don't see more Alf today is because it is sort of a one-way street to him through this one guy no I can respect that but yeah i feel like alf remains just to me this symbol of the 80s excess like not financial excess but like creative excess that the way that we talk about sitcoms sort of jumping the shark in general just yeah the way that things got so silly for a while i think of alf as you know a sort of quintessential example of that but so this episode is a pretty straightforward origin story We get a cold open where the dad is an astronomer or some sort of like amateur scientist who's like making contact with aliens with all his like sort of makeshift Radio Shack gear uh, with the wife, like the two of them. And no, just him. She's coming in like she comes into the garage like, can we please go to bed? And he's like, hold on, I got a lock on something. I mean, we dive in into the middle of a thing in this pilot in such a way that I had like whiplash. I was like, wait a minute. Why does the mom hate Alf from like jump like before he even lands she's like I'm not gonna like this and and like the whole like she's angry for no reason the dad is like this weird like science nerd but apparently has no other job except for there's no way he's just working out of the house like what's going on I don't remember what his other job is and do you remember was all of this like stuff about his home planet exploding and there nobody being is is that a ruse because it was all a little too convenient and i and with as sarcastic and uh, and everything that alf is i am like isn't didn't we find out later on in the season that he was like an escaped convict and he was running away from something 
I don't remember all the details, but I'm pretty sure the thing about his planet blowing up is true. I think they're doing that so that you don't have the E.T. thing of like, well, let's get him back home. That's his ultimate goal. You have this thing of like, he, he's an orphan now. He's a loner. He has nowhere else to go. Let's make him part of our family. Right. I saw, and I saw them playing that up. But there was just something about the way Alf is, the way he always has like, you know, he's always doing naughty things. If you took Garfield and then made him a little, you know, dirtier, like that would be Alf. He's yeah. just always doing he's naughty things. And I just kind of felt like, well, I think this is a lie. This is all too convenient. And then he goes and he's using the microphone to try to like maybe connect with, you know, James and Susan and all these other, you know, Mel Mackians that maybe could maybe escaped, but he doesn't know. And it's like he doesn't know the family's all standing behind him watching. I just was like, this is got to be a lie. Like I'm waiting for act two of this where it turns out that Alf is, you know, running away and he stole this spaceship and he's using this ruse so that the family doesn't try to send him home because he can't go back. I just, I'm like, I have a whole other story written. I think him being overheard by the family was just sitcom-y right. crap. Is just them eavesdropping and just your usual, oh, he's saying what he feels in his heart and he doesn't know that they're listening, so he's going to be honest, but then they conveniently hear it. I and think- the whole family and the dad's like, shh. Yes, it's very silly. Uh, I think you may be right that there's more to his story than he's saying, but I think the basic broad strokes that his planet is blown up and that, yeah, he's kind of a, you know, rapscallion, but he's, he's basically a good guy. I think all of that is more or less true. We could watch more episodes and find out, I guess. But... What you said that is very true is this dynamic of the mom being like kind of a bummer, kind of like a sort of authority figure that's like, you know, why are we going to have an alien around? We're going to get in trouble. Why are you always messing with your sign stuff in the first place? And we are very much supposed to be on the side of Willie, the dad, as this kind of funny, sort of flustered old dad. You know, like you said, he's a nerd. And so the dynamic is going to be like, oh, Alf, you got me in trouble again, you know, and it's like, you're going to get me in trouble with the wife. And what do we do? Which we don't see any of that in this episode. There's um, we don't have that dynamic yet of like really Willie and Alf kind of going at it. And I remember that from when I was watching. This is such a pilot. It's like Alf is getting his moment to sort of interact with each one of the characters. And so we don't have that great dynamic yet. And we get one good scene, though, because the, the guy who plays the dad, is it Max? Max right? Wright. He is, he's a really good actor. Yeah, And amazing. so the, the, there was at least a couple of scenes at the sort of beginning of the episode where you could really see his chops. Like, I was like, man, that guy's a, that is a good actor. That was good. And then towards the end, when we're getting that like overbroad, everybody be quiet, we're going to go sneak in and listen to Alf kind of stuff. I was like, okay, well, that's not so good. <laughs> yeah, no, he's got, in addition to being a really good actor, actor and he's you know from the stage and everything he's also just got a very interesting voice and manner about him so if the crux of his role is going to be exasperation he just he nails that in a way that is 
just different. Like he's just got a different sort of take on it than other actors do. And I think he's a sort of big part of it. Uh, let's talk for a second about the ALF design, because I think this is something that is a strength of the show. Whereas Madam, you know, like I said, was kind of hard and you got the sense like you would hurt yourself if you touched her. ALF is this big ball of fur. And there's just something about the furriness that makes him immediately like, oh, it would be nice to touch him. Like, you kind of want to hug him. Like, he he looks nice and fluffy. And then he's got these big black eyes that are very shiny that also, they, they sort of look like a real animal's eyes in the way they're able to, like, he just looks very sort of organic and lifelike, yeah. even though he's clearly a puppet. Yeah, and and of all of the puppets that we're going to see in every episode, even the Jim Henson ones, he has the most expressive face. He is able to get across what he's saying. He's able to react during scenes like an actual actor. He is able to because he's got he's got a nose that kind of looks like a, a croissant, and and so the puppeteer is able to like kind of suck the nose in, you know, and like turn it to the side and do all sorts of things. Like he is the most expressive. I think. Yeah, he's the same basic kind of puppet that. Cookie Monster or Fozzie Bear is, right? Where the puppeteer is doing the mouth and the head with one hand, and then another hand is doing one of the puppet's hands. So he can have a real hand that he can gesture with and pick things up with. Unlike Madam, who, like you said, is more like a Kermit the Frog deal with hands on rods. Uh, So, yeah. And then you also have have a secondary puppeteer that does the other hand. Right. Now, what we just described is Alf for about 90% of the time, but then they cut to full body shots. And again, they would do this with certain puppets in the Jim Henson world, but they kind of phased it out because it looked so conspicuous. They would cut to a child or a small person running around in a full body Alf suit. And it just always looks so weird. The dimensions and proportions of his body are completely different. And it just, it looks like a little kid dressed like Alf. Yeah, and it's always a little jarring. And then you see him like scurry to the back of the of the set at one point and like climb up on a, a bench to look out a window. And it just it's so off putting like, <laughs> yeah, because he just moves so differently. You're normally used to seeing something that's completely stationary where all of the movement is in the top of him and he's completely cemented on his bottom half. And then, like you said, the word scurry perfectly describes it. When you switch over to these full body shots, it is just this little person scampering around. Yeah. But... Yeah, we get this origin story. The family's kind of going back and forth. What do we do about Alf? He seems kind of fun and we kind of like him. He's winning us all over one by one. Like you said, he has scenes with the individual characters. He wants to eat our cat. That's one of his funny quirks, (laughs) but we convinced him not to. He's obsessed with cats the way Garfield is obsessed with lasagna. I think that's such a funny parallel. 
but before we go forward, we need to talk about how he gets his name Alf in this episode because I forgot well, it and it made me laugh out loud. Okay. Right? Because the little boy, right? There's two kids. There's like a teenage girl and, and like an elementary school boy. And he goes, it's an alien. And the dad goes, it's an Alf. An alien life form, ALF. And I just was like, that's how he gets his name. I just, it was so dumb. It made me laugh. But even see what you just said imbues it with more significance than the way the character says it. Because I noticed this too. He throws out the term ALF. As though it's something everyone yeah, knows. As though he was saying car. You know, right. he just goes, oh, it looks like it's an ALF. And then moments later, they reference E.T., yeah, right? Yeah. There's something everyone's heard of. Now, granted, I understand why you can't call your show E.T., but it's like E.T. or extraterrestrial is something that a human person has said at one point. Nobody has heard the phrase ALF outside of the sitcom ALF before Ever. or since. Right. Yeah. So they got a, a letter from Steven Spielberg once this show is greenlit or whatever, and it was like... Does this have anything to do, or does does your character look anything like E.T.? <laughs> yeah, well, and I think they did a good job of distinguishing it. Look, it makes perfect sense if you consider it a loose parody of E.T. If you say, oh, E.T., the movie, extraterrestrial, okay, our thing will be ALF, alien life form. Like, right. In that and sense, we're not going to try to send him home. His planet's destroyed. We're going to try and keep him here. Right. In that sense, it's perfect. But it is just so funny the way the dad tosses out that phrase yes. as though it's like, oh, you, you don't know what an ALF is? Oh, okay, sorry. Let me explain it. And then the nosy neighbor sees this like furry thing in the bathroom window and calls uh, and to report it. And then we get this another very strange scene with some military guy who has shown up. Uh, He's from the alien task force right. explains. Yeah. The government's alien task force. Yeah. The mom is basically put on the spot and has to decide whether or not she's going to give up Alf, right? The whole episode, he has had a sort of what I called a what about Bob-esque uh, <laughs> relationship to the family. Like he's weird and wacky and he's constantly trying the dad's patience. But by this point, they've well, all kind the of grown. the mom's patience, not the dad's yet. Yeah. Well, the mom always didn't like him or rather the mom was just always sort of skeptical of the situation. She's right. supposed to be the voice of reason. Like we're going to get in trouble. This is a bad idea. And the dad is supposed to represent like he's a scientist. He's brimming with curiosity. So of course, how can he, you know, give up the chance to be friends with an alien? <laughs> So the agent has this hilarious list of procedures. That's when what like, I was going to say. He like tells them everything that he might do. To yeah. He goes, <laughs> well, uh, what are we going to do to the alien? Well, first of all, the, the mom doesn't want to say that they have an alien, but she's like, hypothetically, if we did, what would you do to him? And he's like, well, it would be the standard battery of procedures. It would be electrocution, inoculation, sleep deprivation. <laughs> he just goes down. It was horrible. Yes. And he goes, inoculation. That means needles, because they had <laughs> talked about that earlier, whether or not he'll get jabbed with needles. But yeah, so the mom decides, uh, get lost. You know, we've, we ain't seen no aliens here. <laughs> 
And then we get the scene, like you said, where Alf kind of goes out to the shed or whatever and, and tries to, you know, contact, again, a sort of E.T. reference, you could say, sort of making his own little makeshift thing to contact his fellow aliens, his fellow Melmachians. And that's where he sort of has this kind of, well, since no one's listening, let me get real. I met this family and they're really nice and the kids are great. And, you know, and, and so, it was very much like I'm saying all of this because they're right behind me. Yeah, because the family has come in and seen him, but he doesn't see them. And so, you know, it ends on this note of like, well, you know, it's going to be weird, but maybe we can all be a family. Yeah, they are trying to pull at the heartstrings. They're really, uh, you know, trying to make you be like, oh, this character, Alf, is like, you know, he's got a heart and that's so great. This family needs to keep him. And we had the the lingering question, though, is the mom, when they're at the dinner table, she goes, what are we going to do next week when the older daughter has her sleepover party? Yeah. And everyone's like, ah, we won't worry about it. And then Alf goes back to telling a funny story. And that is one example of the various sitcom stories that they're going to have to come. So that's Alf. Moving on to dinosaurs. Not the mama. Yeah. This was a big cultural meme. Were you into dinosaurs? Yeah. It was one of the, it was on TGIF. So of course I watched it. Yeah, I remember watching this too, but ultimately kind of checking out on it. I think I remember at the time thinking it was a lot like The Simpsons, that they were basically trying what had succeeded with The Simpsons and doing it with dinosaur puppets. Well, so Jim Henson apparently conceived of the idea before The Simpsons and then didn't get greenlit to do this until after The Simpsons was successful because they thought this idea was too wacky and silly to work until they saw The Simpsons work. Yeah, this begins with a in loving memory of Jim Henson title card. So by the time this was on the air, he had passed. This was one of those last few projects that he had a hand in, kind of like the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. So- well, and that's how they got the idea to do this. They were working on the Ninja Turtles stuff in his workshop, and they saw, oh, you know, there's a lot of room for stories here and so while they were working on creating the the uh, animatronics and the puppetry for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that was how the dinosaur thing started coming into Henson's mind. Yeah, there is an important distinction though that I learned a long time ago reading an interview with Henson where they distinguish between muppets and creatures at the Henson studio. And the idea is that muppets are the characters like your Kermit the Frogs and all those guys we like, where the lack of realism, the fact that they are a puppet and that their eyes are ping pong balls and that their hands are on sticks and move in funny ways, like all of that sort of artifice and sort of uncanniness is part of the humor. It's part of what makes them funny and what makes them endearing. Whereas creatures are what they do for the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and anything where they're trying to make something that is going for realism, that is trying to convince you this is a living, breathing thing. 
And it's an important distinction because, again, the sort of the appeal, the connection comes from two different things. It's funny when Bert and Ernie laugh or move or do something. It's funny when Cookie Monster smashes cookies into his face because they're not real, you know, because they're obviously these things that are imbued with this little twinkle of life. And that's what makes them so endearing. Whereas the creatures, the appeal comes from like, wow, you've convinced me I'm actually watching a dinosaur and so the dinosaurs as creations are really impressive to me but they they don't have that that twinkle that the muppets do right and that is something i was surprised i haven't watched dinosaurs since well, I was a child, you know, I, I don't think I've gone back to it at all. And I was really surprised because I had in my mind that they had much more flexibility in their mouths, in the movement of their mouths. And this was like, they, they were sort of like, barely opening their mouths to talk. There wasn't a lot of expression that they could do with it. It was just sort of like an open and close. Now, that being said, they're super cool. Like the teeth are amazing and the skin that's on them is amazing. They do have other uh, people that aren't like working the puppet inside the puppet off, off camera doing the eyes, moving the eyes and like eyebrows and stuff. Yeah, but the mouths themselves and the ability to actually like articulate the words they're saying, it doesn't look good. And I was bummed by that because I didn't remember that. Yeah, I did remember that. And that was one of the things that turned me off was that ultimately... I felt like I was watching the animatronics at Disneyland or something. Like right. they kind of lumber around. And yeah, it's this disconnect between the design, which is like A plus. They look amazing. The boss character, when we get to him, the Stegosaurus, yeah. like he looks incredible. But the movement, yeah, you know, nowadays it's so easy to criticize CGI because it is kind of a bummer that everything is done on a computer now instead of having, you know, the old-timey craft of puppetry and stuff. But you see the limitations of these creature effects where it was just so stiff and they don't feel organic. And so you're just always aware of that gimmickry. You can never really get into it. Yeah. Well, so what the the dino, the dinosaurs kind of remind me of in Fraggle Rock, the gore. Yeah, because you've got body, people playing the body, right? And then they've got heads on them that they aren't operating the heads. They, you know, they open the mouth, right? But the eyes and all the other stuff is animatronic and it's done by remote uh, with other puppeteers. Yeah, and then you've got the baby who I think nobody can be inside that. No, is that a, a hand puppet or I he's a whole robot? I, my guess is that he's a hand puppet sometimes and a robot sometimes or some combination of both. Yeah, and then the other thing I totally forgot is that we've got like a banger female cast. The mom is Jessica Walter, who's the mom from Arrested Development. That's who does the voice of Fran or Franny. And Sally Struthers plays the daughter. Hmm, that's funny. Yeah, so this is definitely shot single camera like a movie. We're not going to mess around with any fake laugh track or anything. Again, we're modeling after The Simpsons, which is same thing, sitcom, but no laugh track. And so we're going to get these little sort of movies playing out. So here's my other 
sort of overarching criticism, observation, question. As an animator, I spend a lot of time thinking about movies with anthropomorphic animals, right? And there's a sort of spectrum in my mind where on the one end, you have stuff like Bambi or Finding Nemo, where the animals are animals and they talk. We get to hear them communicate, given voice in a language we understand, but they actually behave like animals. They live in a forest or they live in a sea. They do what animals do. And the story is a story about Bambi, a deer, doing deer stuff, or Nemo, the fish, doing fish stuff. And then on the other end, you've got stuff like Zootopia, or Kung Fu Panda, or Shark Tale, or things where the animals are walking around, wearing clothes, driving cars, going to a shopping mall, and it's like, why are you making a movie about animals if everything they're doing is what people do, right? So this is something that I always kind of grapple with. You know, you have these things like American Tail, for example, one of my favorite, that's like sort of in between, like the mice kind of behave like mice, but they wear clothes. How do they do that? You know? And so with this, what I was constantly obsessed with is the main arc of this story is the dad wants to buy a 90-inch television. You know, the daughter wants to buy sweaters. Like, everything about this seems to be a story about people who look like dinosaurs, right. not dinosaurs. And they talk about it a little bit, though, right? Because Earl Sinclair, is that his name? Mm -hmm. He, the dad is having this sort of like midlife crisis, right? Yeah. He is, you know, he's telling his newborn son about when the dinosaurs didn't have families and how his ancestors lived in the woods and you would sleep under the trees and, you know, eat their young and, and, and that kind of stuff. And so they didn't live in these ways. They didn't have jobs. Right. And so he, you know, he's telling his son this story. And then we also see him going to work and talking to his friend named like Roy or something. Yes. And his job is a normal human job, like construction and with he's, bulldozers. Yeah. And he's stuff. a tree pusher. Like they don't even, even do what the Flintstones do, where they go, oh, let's come up with the prehistoric version of a television or a bulldozer or whatever. Everything is just modern human stuff. Right. But it's that they're the most, the, the joke is they're the most advanced life forms on the planet. And they're the ones ha who have created all of this. And we get a funny shot where he's like looking out the window and you see a caveman and a cavewoman who have created created the wheel and then are so dumb that they crack it over their head and laugh because, you know, those mammals are silly and stupid and haven't evolved to the way we dinosaurs have evolved. And that's sort of the take of it. But the parallel that I want to shout out, though, is the Ralph Cramden, Ed Norton thing, because the Earl Sinclair is very Ralph Cramden and Definitely. his wife is very, you know, Alice. And then he's got the friend, Roy, who's this like tall, skinny, guy who's kind of like oh i don't know uh, what do you uh, why you do this and you should go talk to the boss kind of a thing who's doing sort of an ed norton thing so i thought that was fun too we just see the honeymooners over and over again you know yeah i mean they're definitely the blueprint by which so much of this is based 
I say The Simpsons just because I remember it being so contemporaneous and the structure of the family is so conveniently similar and the dynamic between the boss and the dad. The Simpsons even had an episode with this same story that probably came later, I think, but the flashback episode of how Maggie was born directly parallels this. Homer quits his job and then has to go back, you know, sort of on his hands and knees because he has this unexpected baby. Yeah, well, The Simpsons also did an episode where they parodied dinosaurs itself and was like, you guys are just doing us and called them out. Yeah. So, yeah, what you said about seeing the cavemen at the end kind of fascinated me. It begins with a news report saying there's a meteor coming that's going to strike the earth. And then he goes like, wait, this just in, never mind. No, it won't. And when that first happened in the show, what I took that to mean is, oh, the dinosaurs don't know that a meteor is coming. Like they thought it was going to, but then they think it's not going to come. What I originally thought revisiting this was this is a show about the normal real history of dinosaurs and it just (laughs) (laughs) hear me out hear me out (laughs) and the one change that they made which is a big change is that the dinosaurs talk and wear clothes and do stuff but I did not think it was really posing an alternate history. I thought it was just supposed to be, what if we made a sitcom about dinosaurs and the dinosaurs could talk? Ha ha, that's our show. And so when they first show that, the news thing saying the meteor is coming, wait, no, it's not. I just took that to mean, oh, we think it's not coming, but their, their doom is still impending. But then as the show goes on, it talks about how, like you said, the dinosaurs weren't always domesticated. They didn't always have a civilization where they lived in houses and wear clothes, but now they do. So I start thinking, oh, is this like a Philip K. Dick-esque alternate reality speculative fiction where what if the dinosaurs were not wiped out and they evolved like is this set in modern times and we're looking at some sort of planet of the apes thing where in the year 1992 or whatever dinosaurs have discovered cars and clothing and shopping malls (laughs) no because they talk about the year right like the the older brother Robbie comes home from school and he's not done well he's not gotten a good report card and he's you know the dad's mad at him and he's like well math doesn't make any sense this year is six million you know six hundred and three and next year sixty million six hundred and two and he's like why are we counting backwards that's stupid yeah Uh, Which is kind of a funny joke, like the whole concept of BC. But yes, and what happens at the end is they see cavemen. For the first time, we see normal live-action people. So that tells us, okay, no, it's not present-day Twilight Zone alternate timeline. This is prehistoric times, but the first part of what I said is true, I think, that this is supposing what if the meteor didn't hit and the dinosaurs continue to evolve and were more evolved than people when people showed up. And I think you are wrong, and I am proven right by a big spoiler, so if you don't want to know the end of the entire series, you should hit mute now. The last episode of the entire series, The Meteor Hits. Okay, so The Meteor does come. So 
All right. So in that case, my original gripe stands like everything I've been saying. I've been trying to challenge the idea that this is dumb because the dinosaurs are wearing clothes and watching television and having stories that are just normal people stories. I was trying to give it the benefit of the doubt of no, this is posing this alternate thing where they evolved further than they did in real life history. But you're saying, no, my first instinct was correct. This is just going, ha ha, what if the dinosaurs had a sitcom and they talked? Right. What if the dinosaurs come and they talked? What if we don't care anything about the actual history of the Earth and we say we're in 66 million something something BCE and there's also humans in caveman at that time? Because we know that that's not true as well. So So then, yeah, I think this is kind of dumb. Like they're not doing well by their premise. You know, if the idea is it's a sitcom about dinosaurs, give us something about dinosaurs. I mean, does it does it have to be though? Like yeah, I, like can it just be dinosaurs are, you know, this in the same way that like Alf, oh look, what if a family had Alf? What if a family was dinosaurs? What if a family yeah, had a robot? But that's the crucial difference is that with Alf You have Max Wright and the rest of the family. You have human beings to play off of him, just like you had in Madam. And in this one, you know, except for the little cameo by the cavemen at the end, we are looking at only these big, stiff puppet costume things. And yeah, I think that's why I checked out back in the 90s and why I kind of mentally check out now. It's like, yeah, if what you're saying is true, then yeah, this is just any old sitcom. I'm just getting a lazy, tropey show and I don't get to look at real people giving performances. I get to look at, you know, something that looks like it should be in a ride at Disney World. Yeah, I think the reason it was a little sort of, you know, cultural thing for a moment was that the baby was so funny. And then yeah. they end, they brought in music. So they did songs in this show. There was like, you know, not even necessarily musical episodes, but, you know, the baby had the big song and then that baby became... Like and the not the mama and hitting them with the frying pan and all of that stuff. Like there was none of that in this episode. So we're still early days yet. We didn't get to see that baby what became their Urkel. You yeah, know, not definitely. the mama was the did I do that? Like that it was it was a thing there for a while and then it went away and all of the other stuff that went along with it dried up. They were in talks they were in development for a movie. They had you know, there was a board game, they were in development for another board game. There was like yeah. all this stuff and then it was like, Oh, everybody's over, not the mama, okay, and then it was gone. And I guess if I wanna be really generous, I could say the baby the baby being born fully verbal is funny like that's a good joke i don't know if that paved the way for stewie griffin uh but the (laughs) fact that he comes out of his egg just going i'm the baby brand new fresh as a daisy gotta love me like that's a funny idea I guess you could say, well, that's because dinosaurs, you know, they're different than mammals and they gestate inside an egg. And so, you know, maybe that's a way that it's tying it into being a dinosaur instead of a person. So it's getting something organic from the premise. I don't know. But I think you're totally right. The baby as the breakout character was really the only sort of claim to fame this show had, which is pretty weird considering how everything is. Gotta love me. 
big purple eyes, I'm very cuddly. I mean, I remember the song to this day. It was it was a thing. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't hate it, but again, I just feel like if you're not going to make any effort to work in dinosaur stuff into your story, you know, if I'm going to be watching a show about a dad that wants a 90-inch television, I think I'd rather <laughs> watch a human dad that wants a 90-inch television. I mean, it is surprising, though, to hear you, a very big Jim Henson fan, to just, like, tear this to shreds and not be into it. Well, again, We got the guy who plays, what, Gonzo and Boober and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, you know, as yeah, the to dad. Be, to be clear, we're talking about one guy who played those three things who also did a voice in those things the puppeteer Uh, what's his name dave dave gels gels yeah and i love his work he plays boober like you said one of my favorite characters ever look all i'll say is that i don't think that jim henson had a huge creative hand in this this is his studio this is his you know his stamp of approval and like we said the design of these creatures is amazing but i don't think jim henson said i have an idea let's make a show about a dinosaur that wants a 90 inch television i don't know maybe he did. <laughs> yeah so this first episode is you know like we said if you've seen the simpsons episode where they flash back to maggie's birth it's the same thing the dad is telling the baby the story of how the baby was born so it's like you know a couple of years prior and the dad quits his job he meets a little like wombat a creature named Arthur. The whole thing is about like, and again, if I'm being generous, I could say, well, this ties into the premise of the show of them being dinosaurs. The dad is having this crisis where he's like, maybe we shouldn't have moved into houses and become domesticated. Maybe I miss the, uh, the wild times when we were back in the forest and his little wombat friend says well i have a family and you know the family is the only thing that really like gives me any any meaning and significance because i'm i'm in charge of my family i'm well, like the and, king they look up was, to me yeah and he was all upset because his family was gone they were lost because somebody pushed over his tree home and that's what the dad does for a living he pushes over trees and then the other thing was is that that wasn't just his little friend that he came upon in the forest that was his dinner that escaped right because that's kind of one of the things that's sort of dinosaur-y that maybe you might like is the mom what she wants is new pots and pans that have the have a grate over the top that it's called like a, a creature keeper pot or a creature keeper pan so that your dinner can't escape because they like to eat you know live food and they're cooking yeah right and they're cooking it live and so this guy jumps out of the pan and or jumps out of the pot and runs away and they're like oh great what are we gonna do now and the mom pulls this creature this other creature out of the freezer that's frozen in a block of ice with its arms and legs sticking out and hair sticking out at the top of the block of ice and is like well we can have a frozen dinner and she drops it in the pan yeah but the dad does end up having this sort of soul searching conversation with Arthur, his former, you know, dinner. dinner, who then becomes because he doesn't decide to eat him in the forest because he realizes that he is still, you know, 
And so this Arthur guy escapes again and ends up working at his, at the dad's work as the boss's assistant. Right. And convinces the boss to rehire Earl. He gives him an imperceptible raise. That's kind of funny. He says, you know, I gave you a raise. The boss says, how much? Imperceptible. And so the dad goes home and tells the wife, look at my imperceptible raise. But what the, what Arthur and Earl sort of discover or settle upon is this sort of message of the show that is both heartwarming and a little patriarchal where they're like, you know, our family gives us meaning, gives us significance, you know, like we're the leader of our family. We're like the king of that world. And it's sort of Again, trying to tap into that theme of like, well, you know, if the dinosaurs were the king of of the forest or whatever, the king of the land in the old ways, well, now you get to be the king of your family. Right. Nobody's going to listen to you anywhere else, but at least they have to listen to you at home. That's kind of Arthur's premise. But unfortunately, nobody listens to Earl at home either. Yeah. So again, I'm not going to belabor the point. It's kind of your standard tropey sitcom with dinosaurs, you know, not not really my cup of tea. Okay, <laughs> moving on to Unhappily Ever After. Ugh. So this was a show that was in the periphery of my neurons up there. The whole time we were trying to pick up the lineup for this episode, and we had the three shows that we've just talked about, and there were this rotating array of choices for the number four spot. Is it going to be DC Follies, where Fred Willard plays a Washington, D.C. bartender and there are puppet politicians? Is it going to be Cousin Skeeter about a African-American puppet boy who lives with a family and has adventures? Is it going to be Greg the Bunny with Seth Green, right? And the whole time I'm going, no, there's this other show. There's a sitcom that I remember watching as a kid with this floppy bunny thing that kind of looked like the dog from Fraggle Rock. What the hell was it? And then at the last moment, I had the thought that Bobcat Goldthwait was involved with this. So I googled Bobcat Goldthwait puppet sitcom. And sure enough, Unhappily Ever After. This ran for five seasons on the WB. This was the show I'm thinking of. Yeah, I don't know. Not, uh, what what can you say? What can you say about Unhappily Ever After? It's a feel-bad show in the style of Married with Children. Yes, that is what it is. They have an oversexed Nikki Cox, who would go on to do much of her career as oversexed. They had baby Kevin Connolly, who went on to be a douchebag, but the least douchiest of all the douchebags on Entourage, or so, you know, he thinks. And a bunch of other people who um, sort of look vaguely familiar. They're all mean to each other. They're, it, it's no, it's no fun. There was, uh, this is the pilot ep- episode. So we didn't even get a lot with Bobcat Goldweight. Like it, it was just a, a few scenes where he was sitting in the corner of the couch, like, ah, people like to hit me when you're not around. And then kind of chucks, you know, goes back to sleep. It's all about a divorce. So this husband and wife who hate each other are getting a divorce and you can't tell like who's worse because they're both horrible. It is very much in, again, the style of Married with Children where it's like we're going to play to all the negative stereotypes. And so it's like trying to be a 
equal opportunity offender for better or worse. So the mom is going to be materialistic and shallow and just sort of, you know, just kind of conniving and, and mean, negative. And right. the dad is also just like a schmuck. Like, I think you're supposed to sort of be on his side. Yeah, uh, but then he says horrible things, too, about yeah. like, oh, you're acting like that because you're on your period. And, yeah. you know, oh, you know, the best thing about this divorce. Yeah, she got everything, but she also got those kids. Well, I think that what I think that the assumption that the show is making is, yeah, you, the viewer, are going to be on board with that. You're going to be like, yeah, man, having kids sucks. Yeah, man, women have their periods and they say stupid shit like it's it's very much tapping into that mindset. Yeah, this is on the air from what, 1995 to 1999, so it falls right smack in that window of time that you and I have talked about in our lives, where we just weren't watching a lot of TV because we, you know, were social high schoolers, and so I sort of vaguely remembered this. I remember Nikki Cox from, like, a bunch of things. She was one of those just, like, good-looking redheaded girls, and I'm a redhead. She's so. the daughter? Yeah, and, and so I know I know her from later on. Like, after she did this show, she did Las Vegas. That was, like, an hour-long drama with a bunch of people. That was, you know, good for a few seasons. I watched a little bit of it, so I remember kind of from that. But, yeah. The audience likes her way too much. It is creepy as hell when she first comes on, and the audience starts hooting and hollering, like they're like it's an audience full of construction workers and she's like walking by in like a thong or something like they're just yeah it's it's super creepy the the basic premise for this show is solid you know it's a divorce the dad has to move out he's got three kids the youngest kid says here take my stuffed animal, Mr. Floppy, you know, take him with you, you know, he'll keep you company or whatever. And so when the dad goes to his crappy apartment where there's duct tape on the couch and stuff like that, your classic signifiers that he's like a shitty uh, single dad. Duct tape on the couch and a pizza box on the counter. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) you can't be a single dad and not have a pizza box on the counter. Uh, So he takes the bunny back to this place and the bunny becomes like his sort of imaginary friend, you know, is going to start talking to him, you know, as though he's sort of gone mad. And that's a solid premise for a show. And I think it having a dark edge and a sort of dark sensibility, like I wouldn't even mind a Seth MacFarlane sensibility for this. And we kind of got that a little bit with Ted. But yeah, this one, like you said, it's it's the combination of who's doing it, that particular cultural moment where in the 90s we just kind of feel like all of the real life horrors are behind us. And so now let's just make fun of everybody and nothing, you know, who cares? We could, you know, don't don't be so politically correct. And so, yeah, that mean spirited tone you know, sort of taints what could be a really good show if it was even just a little bit less mean. Yeah, mean and sexist and silly. And and look, I think, like you said, there might be something good there with, again, this we've got this middle-aged dad who's clearly having like a midlife crisis and he starts seeing this, you know, talking toy because every time he's alone after this really traumatic event, like there's something there, you know, there. And, and I, 
and I bet it, I bet it's funny, but it just, we didn't get to it in the pilot episode. That's for sure. By what this, I think this, what it ran, run for four or five seasons. You said, yeah, Nikki Cox became the breakout star, the oldest daughter. And so she ended up being the co-star. Like it was her and the puppet and, you know, not even really the dad so much anymore. I mean, you know, but he was still around by, you know, once this series got rolling. So that is the kind of thing they were going for. They were, you know, they were aiming for this sort of teenage boy audience that watched the WB, I guess. Yeah. She says, uh, as we're sort of getting to know her character, she says, I choose to save my virginity dot 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 for a wrinkled old wheeze bag with a month to live right so again she's going to be a shallow grave. Yeah, she's like there's definitely an entry fee and it is big <laughs> yeah uh there's a joke when the dad comes into his empty apartment he says i heard the immigration department did a sweep yesterday that was a thing in the 90s i feel like the sort of you know oh don't ask them for their green card or whatever yeah that no and he made an earlier immigration joke too about people you know dying in the rio grande just to you know, just to have the opportunities that that he had or whatever that his wife is now stealing from him or something. Yeah, like you mentioned, there's a joke later where the mom says something he doesn't like. He says, what did you do? Get your period and run right over. So yeah, my note was this makes married with children seem heartfelt, you know, seem sentimental. (laughs) Absolutely, it did. And yeah, I mean, whatever. Look, we we don't want to be like total prudes. Again, I'd be fine with a spiky sort of sensibility, but this show just has a kind of unfunniness. You know, we we went through the basic plot, right? It sort of sets you up as, okay, so this is what it's going to be. This dad is living by himself. He's going to have his three kids coming over from time to time, sort of like Mrs. Doubtfire. But instead of being in disguise as their nanny, he's going to have a imaginary puppet or rather a, you know, stuffed animal that's real, but in his imagination talks to him and sort of goads him on or makes fun of him or whatever the plot calls for. Yeah. And I mean, so the show itself, like the series run is wild, right? So the dad is, we don't see it in the pilot episode, but the dad is an alcoholic and schizophrenic. So that and so the reason like we find out later on that the family is kind of like whatever about the dad is that he is he actually has like these huge problems and then he's the only one that can hear this bunny talking to him. So that's all wild. He and his wife who they're getting divorced in this first episode, like he moves back home in season two and it's even more married with children because they're like hating each other and yet still living with each other. And then in season five, get divorced again like finally the wife sort of always has boyfriends on the side she's always sleeping with somebody else she's always dating somebody else even during the time when they're married she dies at some point and haunts the family like or is that just like some schizophrenic stuff because she is haunting just jack like it's so wild the whole thing is crazy so it's, you know, more power to him that it lasted for five seasons. Many sitcoms don't. But uh, yeah, again, I would have to say interesting curiosity, interesting cultural artifact, not a ton of appeal for me. So looking back on these, you know, it's, it's funny. Puppet-based sitcoms, 
It was there on the list and the whole time I've been pulling for it like this is going to be so fun and it was like watching all of these shows was fun and these are all obviously shows that do not cross over with any episodes we've done yet but a lot of them could because you know especially ones like alf and dinosaurs they are tropey oh and alf will a hundred percent appear on other episodes they like that show their very special christmas episode is a sight to oh my god well yeah that one we watched sort of by accident one time and it involves a little girl dying of cancer and uh yeah some pretty heavy stuff My thought about all of these is that, kind of like I said at the beginning, there's this funny sort of catch-22 to puppet sitcoms, because so much of what's appealing about sitcoms is the theatricality, is the fact that it's there in front of a live audience, and the whole sort of wacky staginess of that. So to throw in the feat of puppetry, which does also have its origins, of course, in theater and live performance, to combine those you would think would work really well. But then on the other hand, what we see time and again is the gimmickry, the technical demands and the technical, the limitations that that process creates ends up sort of undermining the human element. And so you just, you end up with a show that's just not ever going to be one of your favorite shows because you don't connect with it because of all the weird compromises that need to be made to get these puppets to work. Yeah, and I would say the one that succeeds the most is ALF. I think ALF does it the best, but that was the one where the cast themselves was like, it was horrible. It was grueling. Like I, I was miserable. And then, you know, the guy who played Alf, who was also the show creator and one of the producers was like, yeah, I mean, I guess they said it was hard and yeah, it was long hours, but they were paid well. So they don't have anything to complain about. Yeah. That one is successful in terms of Given you a family sitcom with an alien and they went through all the tropes and stuff. But what you were saying about the way it was shot and the whole vibe of it being done in front of a studio audience is fake does take something away for me. And so in a way, even though Madam was sort of unwatchable to me, like I could hardly make heads and tails of what was going on, I feel like they were on the right track. You know, I don't want to see something like dinosaurs where it's just these creatures moving around on a set all by themselves. I want to see something like Madam's Place where you're seeing a puppet being performed and you're seeing actors interacting with it and having to sort of roll with the punches and all the little idiosyncrasies that will come with performing with a puppet in front of a live audience. Like, I think that that was really on the right track. I just wish that, I don't know, that it just made more sense. Or maybe if that kind of show was made, you know, 10, 15 years later and the whole sort of technology of it was a little different or maybe a different sort of cultural milieu, if you will. uh, I don't know. Maybe it would have worked better. But in a way, that was the one that I want to kind of give my MVP prize to. Yeah. And look, I think that what you're 
talking about really speaks to the success of The Muppet Show, right? Because The Muppet Show wasn't trying to be a sitcom. They were more of like a sketch show or a variety hour kind of thing. And that's where this stuff works because you can do a sketch of a sitcom you know you can have this appear you know and and have the interaction between the humans and the muppets or you know the hand puppets or whatever it be it a thing that's happening for a short period of time and then move on to something else and move on to something else right and i think that's why the Muppets was so successful and the pieces of that that they pulled in to make Madam's Place work, that's why you like that. Yeah, the Muppets had human guest stars every time. So you were seeing the Muppets interact with John Cleese or Steve Martin or Candace Bergen or whomever. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think in terms of of like your parameters, the way you've set them, Madam is the most successful at that. But even if Alf was a pain in the ass to shoot and even if the guy who works him is a little too, you know, full of himself or whatever, full of Alf. That show has a little, it has the nostalgia place in my heart almost as much as some of the other ones. And then the baby does too. Like there's just, it's that like childhood iconography for me. So for those reasons, even though neither of those episodes were, were really great episodes, I think Alf, was the better written episode, uh, even though I felt like it was setting us up for going a different direction. (laughs) It was a little too um, sappy right away. Sure. And we should say we're watching all pilots, so we always have to give a little bit of an allowance for that. You know, every show is usually not totally found itself in the first episode. But uh, yeah, so much for the puppet-based sitcoms. What are we talking about next week? Next week, it's all about sleep. We're taking on dream sequences. We're going to start with Punky Brewster, Season 1, Episode 17, My Aged Valentine. Growing Pains, Season 3, Episode 10, This Is Your Life. Then Who's the Boss, Season 6, Episode 3, In Your Dreams. And finally, Frasier, Season 4, Episode 3, The Impossible Dream. Yep, that'll be next week. Everybody get a good night's sleep. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to the sitcom study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. (laughs) 